may have come into this room believing. The church is not primarily a, it's not a, it's not a building. It's not an event. It's not um, a organization of those who <clears throat> share the same political opinions. It is a people saved by the power of God for the purposes of God in this world. In fact, the Bible seems to say that the, the church is bound up with the gospel itself. It is what the gospel creates in Jesus, when Jesus saves, when God determines to rescue someone. He doesn't just rescue them and pull them from the depths and leave them isolated on their own. He joins them each and every time to a family. And in fact, in that family, they would see the promises and the power of God on display. They would experience the effects of the gospel firsthand as a result of those relationships, which, yes, are messy and broken, but full of supernatural, profound power. Do you believe that's what God is doing in this church? That's what we've been experiencing and discovering together, according to God's word, together over the past 10 weeks. And despite, again, what we might assume, this place is where the future power and presence of God, which we will experience in full in his kingdom, it begins to tip backwards into our everyday, and this place becomes an embassy of it, a firsthand taste of it, where we and the watching world begin to see an outpost of the living God, heaven touching earth. If that feels, again, too good to be true, it's because it's perhaps I, it, you've experienced some painful things from Christians and churches, but it's also because every church needs to grow up into this image. And that's what we're going to be looking at today, is how do we grow as a body? It's a question that we've not yet looked at. And um, I am, again, um, uh, aware of the fact that even though there is skepticism uh, uh, growing towards the church, um, and there are cultural factors, again, which might have encouraged you to participate in a church um, or I identify as a Christian. Those cultural factors are disappearing. It's getting more costly to identify as a public Christian than ever before. The Bible assumes that the church would outlast us, that it would become something more profound over time, that it would be something we would pass the baton of faith on again and again and again and again. In fact, it would grow up not only the individuals inside of it, but this corporate Thing. And we're going to look at a particular image in the Bible which pulls that image of growth together, an image that we've looked at um, before, and it's one of the most important when it comes to the church itself, and that's the image of a body. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, if you want to look at this passage and keep your Bibles in front of you this morning, I encourage you. We just had read. What does it say over and over again? The the goal is that it would grow up into the standard of the measure of Christ himself, that it would grow up in unity and maturity, that in times no less hostile than ours, written to Christians who were sacrificing for their faith and wondering if it was worth it, he is assuming that their church and the church would grow. But how? Today, we're going to look at this image of the body of Christ, the, ongoing, the means of God's ongoing activity in the world, and we're going to consider how it builds itself up in love, how we, in fact, participate with God himself 
in its progress. We're going to be doing so by looking at one scripture, Ephesians 4, but we're actually going to use Ephesians 4 as a means by which we survey a whole ton of scriptures that we've looked over the past 10 weeks. In fact, we are going to look at nine different points, and some of you are, oh no, here we go. Okay, these are going to be short, okay, nine different points summarizing the nine different weeks we've looked at about how, about nine priorities a church that not only lasts but grows must have. And so, just to keep you on your toes, we are actually going to start with the second priority. We're going to jump past the first, okay? We're going to come back to it. You don't get to skip one. But number two, let's start with number two. Genuine conversion. A church that lasts and a church that grows. Are you ready to discover this with me? Prioritizes genuine conversion. Now, what do we mean by this? You remember the second week of our series, after we defined what the church is, we ask a very important question of who can belong to it. And depending on what your background is, it might seem like a confusing question to ask to begin with. Why in the world would we busy ourselves with the question of who can belong to a church? Shouldn't we say anyone? I mean, those who gather here, certain, you probably certainly hope so. I don't know about your resume, if it's anything like my own. We better hope that anyone can join a church, let alone, if we're really eager for the church to grow, doesn't it seem like a waste of time to start defining who the insiders and outsiders are? Doesn't that seem like the very thing that would stunt a church's growth? Some of us know what it's like to struggle to get a date. I'm glad I'm not there anymore. Isn't it enough that somebody's interested? I mean, do we really want to be adding a bunch of criteria along the way? But what misses, this misses is something right at the heart of the Bible, right at the heart of what God himself is purposing and accomplishing when he determines not to leave humanity in, the, in its sin and death and its ongoing rebellion, but takes the initiative that God himself is responsible for giving birth to Christians and to what they would come to comprise, the church. And while it is true that anyone can join it, that anyone who would rest upon Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, anyone who rests upon him can join this thing. In another sense, no one can, apart from a miracle taking place. What I mean by this is nobody just wises up to it. Nobody figures it out. Nobody becomes a Christian simply because they've outperformed their peers or were smarter than their peers or more moral than their peers. Each and every time, according to the Bible, a Christian becomes a Christian by means of a miracle. No one can join God's family unless God himself each and every time draws the individual soul. Unless God takes what was a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. Unless, as Jesus puts it in John chapter 3, unless an individual can be born again. After all, what child do you know that had any say in its birth? What child, what baby do you know that contributed anything to its birth other than the pain and difficulty that took place along the way? I have witnessed four births, and I can tell you who deserves credit for them, and it's none of those children who were born. When it comes to entering the kingdom, the only reason 
you can see the kingdom according to the Bible. The only reason you can enter the kingdom is because God has chosen to save. Because you have been born again. And because you contributed nothing to the process other than the pain and difficulty along the way. Despite the resume that you brought with you, God has chosen to save. In other words, to use the language of our passage, the only one who can take sinners and make them, as this passage says, into saints. The only one who can take exiles and join them into a family. The only one who can take disconnected members and make them a body. The only one who can join them together is the only one who can make them then together grow. And the only credit we can take for that new birth, again, is the sin that made it necessary. Friends, on the one hand, just to get really practical before we move on with the rest of these nine points, and I have to get to them, is that means if we're going to understand the church and we're going to understand who comprises it, we need to understand first and foremost that conversion is not ultimately something we can predict or control. It's and we should be very careful before we resort to kind of all sorts of silly means of trying to manipulate new birth, new conversion, by looking down the road and seeing what's working in other places, seeing what kind of evangelism technique, what kind of book study, what kind of songs they're singing, what kind of color do they paint their sanctuary. We cannot manipulate new birth. And we cannot predict it and dare not predict it, especially before the transformation that Jesus says the new birth would come with accompanies it. Before that transformation has an opportunity to show itself. We should be careful before counting our chickens before they are hatched. Because God says every time he saves, kingdom power has been poured into that heart. Poured into that soul. Poured into that individual. And we should expect God himself to show off. And if we want God to get the glory he is due, we should call out the ones he has actually saved. But friends, this also means not only... We cannot predict and control those who enter the kingdom of God. It also means the weight of the church and its growth is not upon our shoulders alone. It's not even ultimately upon our shoulders. Jesus has promised that he is the one who builds his church. In fact, he says to the woman in the well, in the well just a chapter after the one where he speaks to Nicodemus, speaking of the new birth, he says that God is the one who is seeking worshipers for himself. He is the one who's growing his body. And he always does it according to his way. Which leads us to the next priority a church should have that lasts and grows. Number three, regular gathering. Regular gathering. We look to Hebrews chapter 10 for this one. But in a day where you might find, well, I should say you're, you're just, I'd be honest, you're more, you're able to find Better music on Spotify, although I love Chris and Grace and Stephanie and Deb. You can find more polished music on Spotify, and you can definitely find better preaching on YouTube, although I'm really glad you showed up today. In a day where you can very easily cultivate a private, personal worship experience with God on your own terms, that asks very little of you, that allows you to stay in your PJs with a cup of coffee, it's perhaps stranger than ever to say that showing up to here matters, that it's significant, that it's something that you should sacrifice your priorities and comforts for. The Bible seems to assume that the presence and power of God, the kingdom inbreaking, 
as it were, to experience heaven setting foot on earth, that that actually happens and is tied up with God's people getting together. It shows up in a particular way, not as they're scattered in front of TV screens or as they're worshiping from bedside Baptist, but when they are with one another worshiping together. Yes, the church is a people. I don't know how many, how many times I have said that to people. It's not an event. It's not a program. It's not a building. It's not a set of traditions. It's not built on shared preferences or political opinions. If it was, then the church is going away. It's going to expire with the times. But the church is not. None of those things. It's a people. People saved by the power of God. Again, but that people is meant to gather. The church shows up practically, not just theoretically. It's meant to be flesh and blood as flesh and blood as your own body. In fact, the very word for the church, ecclesia, you know what it means? Gathering. In fact, as we learn from Hebrews 10, when we fail to gather, as it warns, which isn't it comforting to know that even in the first century, among the first Christians, they struggled to gather when we fail to gather. It's one of the signs that we've begun to lose our footing spiritually to slacken our grip upon the gospel itself. In fact, one of the signs to your elders that we need to take more attention, intention in your life is when you neglect the gathering. Of course, there are times when we can't, whether because of our illness or the illness of a loved one or work schedules or a pandemic. But according to the Bible, that's the rarity. The rule for thousands of years is and has been that Christians would gather on the Lord's Day. And not just once a month, not just a couple times a year, but as often as they could as Christ's coming draws near. And I tell you what, Christ is a lot nearer today than he was when those first words were first written. Given it, giving this gathering priority over work schedules vacations, or sports, or I just didn't wake up in time, which we're, it's 1045. I mean, we're still sleeping at 1045. We got to talk about your schedule. Well, why do we gather? Why do we gather? Because of who we are. We are worshipers of the living God, and it is in worshiping God that this body reorients itself around its head, and its joints are pulled back into socket but also because we need others, and others need us more than we realize. As Hebrew puts it, Hebrews puts it, we gather because we need one another to stir up one another in love and good works. Others need you for that task, and you need them as well. The more isolated we become, the more we become slack in the very things that make us distinct as Christians, and others suffer along the way. We are we gather to devote ourselves to intentional, proactive pursuit of another person's good. When we show up here, the body, actually, on the spot this morning, because you have chosen to be in this place, the body is knitting itself together and growing in love. You know, that can take place simply in when somebody hears you sing, Sing truth that they have had difficulty clinging to. Especially, perhaps, in singing, hearing you sing songs that you may not have picked. Or, as the person 
who sits next to you watches and hears from you after the sermon about how God's word was needed by you that morning. Or as you take intention, asking someone the risky question of how can I pray, and maybe even doing it. When you offer to have someone over for lunch or to grab coffee during the week, when you sacrifice a little bit of your private sphere and circle and you welcome others into it. As our passage puts it, the body is built together as we speak the truth in love to one another. It's hard to do when we're not around one another, isn't it? Friends, this this gathering is perhaps the most important place we have to show off what it means to be God's people, to show off what it means to be called out from sin and death by the living God and devote ourselves to his, fa- to his fame, not to preferences, not to common interests and backgrounds, but to share a common story together, that I was lost and now I'm found. I was blind and now I see. I was dead and now I'm alive. You will always share that in common with people you feel like you have very little in common with. And while it might be easier, again, to tune in with your cup of coffee and your PJs, the church is always meant to be a face-to-face thing. As they gather and as they devote themselves to number four, faithful preaching and teaching. Again, in a world that lives on five-minute sound bites and constant entertainment, this is strange. The fact that, in fact, we would be spending so much of our time in the service reading, singing, praying, and so much time hearing God's word, especially when it might not particularly scratch a itch that I brought with me. It's not to mention that there, uh, we have real reservations, some of us, about Someone standing at the front of a room telling us how to think and feel, claiming to know what is best for my life, claiming the authority to mess with your life and your interests and your behaviors. Preaching assumes a, a great deal, doesn't it? In a day and time where we are increasingly skeptical to something like this. So why is preaching and teaching so central? Well, it's certainly not, and I need you to hear this, because I feel like you have a lot to learn from me. And it's not actually because you and I need a spiritual pick-me-up every once in a while. Rather, it has to do with how our God, the same God who loved us and saved us and brought us to himself and into a body, it has to do with how that God intends for us to grow. See, God is concerned with your growth more than you are. He's concerned with your strength your persistence, your patience more than you are. And his means by which you would grow up, which your pastor needs quite a bit, is his word. Sitting under it. Ordering ourselves under it. God's word is his means of ruling us as our God and our good and righteous king. To put this differently, we are surrounded, and if you're not aware of this, just we can talk, but take a look at how many voices are screaming at your attention. Perhaps even more voices than the first century would have had. They're as close as the click of a remote or the swiping of a phone. 
We're surrounded by voices, voices our passions desperately want us to tune into, voices that are actively working to convert us, if you will, to a certain way of thinking and feeling and acting. And no matter how, if you took a a fast from TV or from social media or tried to cut yourself off and bury your head in the sound, the voices do not stop. And because the fact is, is that something in us, what Paul refers to as our itching ears, wanting to be scratched, according to 2 Timothy, we want to hear these voices. We go looking for them because we have deep desires and assumptions about the world we want to have affirmed. We want to be left as we are to keep on our path, to define what is right and good for us on our own terms. Our itching ears are looking for confirmation all the time. When we find ourselves challenged by God's word rather than affirmed, when we find our, not just our toes, but our whole foot just mashed on by God's word, no matter what kind of culture or time you live in, it's easy to avoid it, to look for reasons to explain around it, to find someone who's going to tell me differently. Because our hearts aren't fully convinced of God's trustworthiness or because simply we're just prone to forget it. Because we bring our itching ears wherever we go, we need to have the ongoing voice of God calling us back to the truth. We need to have God's voice orienting us. It's why God's people have always allowed the the gathering, but also preaching and teaching to take center stage. Even when what is said is not always welcome and accepted. In fact, probably the sign of a healthy church is when the preaching and teaching doesn't just offend the sensibilities of everyone outside this room, but those who are within it. (laughs) Shows that it's a little, when it's a little closer to home, it shows that, well, maybe we're getting closer to the heart of the text. In fact, through preaching and teaching of that word, the exposing of that unchanging word upon ever-changing circumstances, unchanging word, ever-changing circumstances, we understand that God is actually still speaking to us today. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that is said from the pulpit comes from God or should be treated with that same authority. But wherever there is an overlap between what God has said and what the preacher has said, regardless of who is occupying that pulpit, and I would say so for the songs as well, wherever there's an overlap between what God has said and the speaker has said, an electric connection is made, and we encounter the living God himself. Notice this is all over our passage. To see the body grow, how has God guaranteed it? How has he provided for it? Where, where does it begin? In Hebrews, I mean, not Hebrews, sorry, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Now, I don't have time to go into each of these roles, but you know what they all hold in common? They are ministers of the word of God. All of them, each one of them, proclaimers, equippers, who equip God's people with the word that those people might expose the word upon one another, upon their own lives, and refuse all that contradicts it. Those leaders, these ministers of the word, help the church to hold fast to the word and to refuse everything else that cries them to, to them to leave it behind. But what about belonging to a local church? 
do I really need to commit to one? That's the next question. And do I need to commit to one publicly? This leads to our fifth priority. I told you we'd be moving quickly. At least I hope you think so. Uh, we're in number five, meaningful membership. Five, the fifth thing that a church that is healthy and lasting needs to prioritize is meaningful membership. Now, if it feels like a running theme, it is, but this too flies in the face of our assumptions, of our culture. This priority too causes Christians to look even stranger. If we are committed to anything as a society, especially, and I just, I think I need to speak mostly to my peers, those who are much older than me, I just have to tell you, one of the things I so value about you is commitment, of seeing through your word. When you commit to something, you're for it. But I have to tell you, oh man, my peers, I, I don't, like, it's why on social media, when there's an event invite, there's not just yes, no, but I'm interested. My generation is the reason that that option exists. If we're committed to anything, we're committed to not being committed. After all, what if we choose the wrong thing or lock ourselves into a kind of commitment that asks more from me than I get out of it? And what if something goes wrong when I make that commitment and I've already locked myself in and I have in inevitably find myself hurt, especially if you've been hurt in the past? Why would we need to commit to a local church of all places? Isn't it enough for me to show up regularly? Isn't it enough for me to give money to its ministries? Do I really need to become a member? Not if how you conceive of membership is how you conceive of being a member to Costco. Not if you expect it to come with a perk plan or to give you some inside track to influence. But if the church really is, as God says, the the temple of the living God, the new family of God, the place where heaven touches earth, and it is designed to show up in real space and time and not just theory, then joining a church publicly is one of the most important things a Christian can do. It's where the universal church shows up. Joining a church is one of the most important things, again, for your Christian well-being and growth because the church is meant to be flesh and blood. In fact, it has a lot to do with what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, what he calls the keys of the kingdom. He is given a specifically a kind of authority. That's what Jesus represents. He's given an authority to the church, an authority that comes from Jesus himself. And what is that authority? To do what? To affirm two things. The what of the gospel, and we said the who of the gospel. Let me put that differently. It means that a church has the authority and the responsibility to go public with the good news of the gospel, of the genuine thing, and to call out all alternatives, to go public with what the genuine gospel is, as well as those who have come to hope in it. They are to judge, in a sense, in the right sense, the authentic from the false. And just as a judge doesn't make someone innocent, that is not a judge's job. Their job is to declare what is right, to, according to the law, assess guilt or innocence, but does not give or bestow innocence. They simply make it clear. And just like a judge can often, I shouldn't say often, 
can sometimes, please don't say often, okay, I'm, I'm not saying often, but judges can at times get that judgment wrong. Even as a judge doesn't make someone innocent and can get that judgment wrong, so can Christians. But saying publicly, so far as we know, these are the Christians in this place. Even though that seems tremendously judgmental, it can be an incredibly practical thing. Make an incredible practical difference. After all, how else is it that someone who is outside the church, who is a non-believer, and that may include some of you. How is it that a non-believer, maybe like you, gains a taste of the authentic thing and doesn't just get inoculated to a counterfeit? How do they see the real gospel on display? How else, then, are we to genuinely depend upon one another, to seek one another's good? Who exactly do those one another's include? And how else, to use the language of our passage in Ephesians 4, is this body to be joined and held together as each part is working properly when we aren't sure what each part is? Throughout history, the church has affirmed not only gospel, but those who have come to hope in it, in a particular place, in a particular time. And they've done so through two different things, in two different ways. First, they've done through, so through baptism in which a Christian, it's their very first time to go public with their faith, to go public particularly in their commitment to Jesus, to say, I am his, he has saved me by grace and grace alone, but also to make a commitment to his body, to say, I'm going to need you to follow him. It is a welcome to the family. Baptism is a rite of initiation where those commitments are made. But second, those Commitments are renewed through another sacrament or ordinance of the Lord's Supper, where congregations regularly renew their vows, not only to Jesus, but actually to one another. And because there is so many misconceptions, though, about what it means to belong to a local church, let alone what a church believes— as well as the significance of these sacraments, churches like Bayless have also added a membership process to help those who God has saved to make the kind of commitments he has intended for them to make to one another, to prepare them to join what God has already, if you are a Christian, joined you to, to outfit you for the job that came with your salvation that we might see as close of a picture of heaven on earth among the members of this church as possible. That is why membership matters. But the flip side of this is actually something that is a little more uncomfortable to talk about, and that's priority number six, loving discipline. Priority number six. We look to first, second Corinthians, sorry, this should say first Corinthians, not second, first Corinthians chapter five. You know, as strange as it sounds, to see this picture of heaven on earth, to truly experience the presence and power of God break through, a church needs, at times, direct and painful intervention. Sticking with the image of a body for a second, a healthy body, what does it require? Well, it requires a balanced diet and exercise, but it requires much more than that, doesn't it? At times, when things are going wrong, it needs intervention. It needs correction. A bone may need to be reset. 
bitter medicine might need to be swallowed daily. You might need to submit even to a doctor's scalpel. A healthy body requires some proactive, intentional habits, but also, at times, direct, even painful intervention. And a healthy church body will also, at times, need correction as well. So that a small problem doesn't become a large problem. So that a large problem doesn't become a deadly problem. In a church, we refer to this as corrective discipline. And it happens every time a member corrects another member in love. Every time a difficult conversation takes place between Christians who love one another and have responsibility for one another. Every time a Christian speaks truth, particularly the gospel, to another confessing Christian in love. Often in private, often informally, corrective discipline in a healthy church actually happens all the time. And yet the more clearly a confessing Christian demonstrates a characteristic posture towards sin, specifically choosing sin again and again over Jesus, or choosing sin in some glaring and concerning and deadly ways over Jesus, the more they are unaffected by the shame of that sin, and the more stubbornly they avoid repentance, true repentance, a repentance that welcomes the consequences, whatever they may, may be, the more serious and potentially uncomfortable the treatment is going to be. The more serious the sin and the refusal of repentance, the more serious the treatment. In fact, there are times, and rare times we pray, where the only option left to a local ga gathering of believers is something extreme, something we know as formal church discipline, in which someone is no longer welcome in that body to participate in the Lord's Supper. Or someone who was a member is removed from membership. There are times, according to Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 18, when a church should not only affirm someone as a Christian, but may and sometimes must remove that very assurance and to be equally public about it. It's for the sake of the individual first, that the posture that that individual has towards sin, which we must believe is actually killing them, that that posture might die instead and that believer might be saved on the day of the Lord if they prove to be a believer through repentance. Again, using the words of our passage. The goal is restoration. But second, for the sake of the church. And that's really what Paul spends more time talking about. And you talk about something that is very strange in our culture. But the Bible, again, assumes that this, this family is precious to Christ. He, after, after all, purchased it. He obtained it at the highest price in the universe with his own blood it is precious to him and he will protect it by any means necessary and so he knows that the posture of indifference towards sin let alone celebration of sin that posture spreads like cancer and kills the very thing he loves and so he calls us to call it out to interrupt to intervene to stop the effect of sin 
that is dividing the members of the household of God, that's deflating its distinctiveness, that reduces the church in just, into just another place where self calls the shots. Perhaps most importantly, though, church discipline is for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of making clear who a believer is now and who believers are together in Christ. According to Paul, Christians now have been washed. Now they are holy. Now they are innocent. And I say now because they come with a whole heap of baggage. But now they have been made innocent by the death and resurrection of Jesus himself. And Jesus expects that they would now live like it. To not turn a blind eye, to not laugh and sneer, or to ignore the very things he died to save us from. The church lives into the transformation he has made possible. Does this mean that the church or Christians will never sin again? No. That is definitely not the case. I can I, look at my life this week. I can give you the ways, okay? So does that mean that a Christian will never sin? Hardly. But Jesus never intended for his church to blend into its surroundings. Instead, at infinite cost, he has remade us into something that would make the gospel visible. To so something that would not just, again, declare a gospel that frees us from sin's consequences, but a gospel that gives us power from sin's hold upon us. A gospel that offers forgiveness and transformation. Whatever it takes for that gospel to shine forth among the people of God is not only worth it, but the very definition of love. Which leads us to number seven, authentic community. After all, again, saying all this about love, we could have all of these other priorities in order. We could be a born-again community, a gathering community, a learning, committed, correcting community, and still not actually be loving. And some of you know from firsthand experience what that's like. Just notice how often love, in fact, in Ephesians 4 shows up in our passage. Not only does a healthy body speak the truth in love, but according to Ephesians 4, it is the very means by which it is built up in verse 16, by love. And by love, Paul doesn't mean just acts of love, like gritting my teeth at the people I'm always going to be irritated at and just doing the next right thing. That is not what it conceives of. It's not just acts of love. He means that love increasingly will be an emotional one, a genuine one, to not just care for, but to care about those who are in this body. To have them brought to your mind often. To have your heart increasingly warm towards them. Experiencing affection even towards the ones who irritate you. Even towards the ones who have done you wrong. This means that in God's body, there is no more room for jealousy or bitterness or gossip or one-upmanship. One Why would there be, given all that he has said? There's no more room for sneers and stares and slander. No more room for serving only those who can pay me back in return. Instead, the basic nerve response of this body is to extend the very love that we have experienced firsthand, even for enemies. Does this mean, again, you're going to be best friends with everyone here? No. But in the same way that God loved us, the gospel reorients our basic posture. It rewrites the rules of our relationships. 
and makes us love even enemies. Enemies, as Peter reminded us us in his sermon, like Philemon and Onesimus. As Peter preached so excellently, again, a slave master and his runaway slave, once defined by how they had wronged one another and been wronged by each other, the gospel rewrote the rules of that relationship and presented them back together as brothers. It's hard to imagine that a community that was known for I should say, let me say this again. If this is true, and if that is actually what happens, if, if we saw a church like this, that its basic nerve response was to love with a love that it had been extended, even to those who they would normally be irritated at, normally cancel, normally cut out of their lives as toxic people, a church that extends that love and forgiveness over and over again, is it hard to imagine that that kind of community would become magnetic to others, disruptive to others, to challenge the expectations that we have written into our relationships? In fact, I'm convinced that this community, and if it is a, a, a public community of love, that it becomes one of the best evangelistic tools that we have. It adorns the very gospel that we preach, but only so far as we prioritize number eight, public witness. Think once more of the body, friends. What is the whole point of a body? Is it to veg out on the couch and watch ESPN? The answer to that question is no. What happens to a body, in fact, if it remains inactive for long periods of time? Okay? Some of us know firsthand what it's like if it remains inactive. And the consequences that come to a body. A body is meant to be active. Nothing good happens when a body stops moving. After all, a healthy body is an active body. And this body has been set apart for God, by God, to be active in a certain way, or you could say for a certain mission. And we've seen this in Matthew chapter 28. Chris gives me a hard time because I think I've preached 13 sermons on this verse. What is the mission that the church has been left to make disciples of all nations? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. In other words, Christ is saying, go and bring others into this embassy. Add others to this temple. Build this body up with more members. Make disciples of all nations that God might receive the worship he is due from all. In a sense, friends, The church exists for a purpose that is beyond itself. Not just to endure to the end of our lives, though it must do that, but to, in fact, outlast us, to pass the baton of faith onto another neighbor and another generation. And that begins now, as we think and pray and dream beyond ourselves. A church that grows inward and only inward and never outward I've used this image before, but it's like an ingrown toenail. As it grows inward, it only infects. It only causes pain. And sometimes it could in turn, it t- turn out to be deadly. It only does harm. So how does a church grow outward? By living as salt, according to Matthew 6, preserving others from the rot of sin, living as distinct Christians, spearheading the drive for righteousness in whatever relationships and whatever societies God has placed them, like William Wilberforce or Amy Carmichael or Martin Luther King Jr., Christians who actively displayed the character of God, a character of, that, of God that is just and good, made it tangible, and a God who has 
cared even for enemies in need. Christians actively keep relationships and societies from going rancid, cultures from decaying, that the promises of the gospel might be visible by those who have been saved by it. They are not passive. They are not isolated. They are distinctive. But they also go public as lights of the world, as Jesus puts it, revealing the way to life, exposing the light of God's word, which we've already discussed, upon the very things we might have preferred to keep in the dark, usually ourselves, exposing the word of God upon what would lead to danger and death. Instead of hiding themselves under a basket or or isolating themselves within the walls of their homes and their churches, instead of trying to protect their safety, their reputations, and their comforts on their own terms, Christians actively seek to persuade others to the truth of God's word at times at great cost. And yes, this means that they might not fit with the surrounding culture and likely won't. And Jesus warns that if they do so, others will revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on Jesus' account. After all, driven by the example of Christ himself, Christ, where did it lead him being the light of the world? But to be snuffed out? So that he might make a community of lights of the world in his resurrection, those who would be lights in the world, the inbreaking of his presence and power. Do we really think they can avoid the same fate? They set themselves apart, though, driven by his example and the gospel itself. They set themselves apart for Jesus' will, just as Jesus set himself apart for the fathers, trusting that all authority really does reside in Jesus' hands, and he really is with us to the end of the age. The light of the world has made its lights in the world to glorify our Father in heaven. And all of this, our passage assumes, will need one more thing. Number nine, godly leaders. This is the one we looked at last week. And again, did you notice how our passage began? In verse 11, after it lists all of the titles, these people that are in the church. What is the third word? And he gave. It's interesting. Why do we have leaders in the church? Not simply because we always have leaders and we're just doomed with them, but because God intended leaders as a gift. The right kind of leaders would be a gift to God's people, not to wow you with their personalities or to build ministries around their preferences and certainly not to replace you in the ministry of the gospel. But according to verse verse 12, what does it say? To equip you for the ministry, to ready you for it, to to outfit you to build a active healthy body up in love together that each part might work properly. In fact, he's given you two kinds of leaders, according to verse Timothy 3. Two kinds of leaders who would help you care for, help uh, the body be cared for from all sides, all the body from all sides. Elders and deacons working hand in hand for the task. Elders are those, just very simply, who have been entrusted with the spiritual guidance of the church, including its public teaching who oversee the church's doctrine and discipleship, and who feed, lead, and protect you, not just this thing, but the individual Christian. God has given you lead shepherds who would care care for you as the chief shepherd himself would, who is God himself. 
but they are meant to work together with deacons, lead servants in the church, who ensure that the tangible physical needs of the body are being met, and that the, bo- the unity of that body is being preserved, that the ministry of the word would continue without distraction and corruption. Shepherds and servants working together to promote worship, to preserve unity, to protect the church's holiness, ensuring that no need and no individual in the church God has obtained by the blood of Christ is neglected. And they do this while setting an example for you in their personal holiness and in their public witness, especially in their family life, calling you to follow them as they follow Christ, who is the chief shepherd and the chief servant of this body, that he might be the true point of our confidence, our adoration, and our loyalty, which leads us all the way back to point number one. You curious what it is? Christ himself. What does a healthy, lasting, growing body need to prioritize? It needs to hold up and hold out our Savior and King, Jesus, who is the point of all of this anyways. Friends, what is the church? Who can belong to it? Why do we gather? Why are preaching and teaching central? Is is joining actually necessary? Is discipline really loving? How do I love members who are different? How do we love outsiders? And who leads? We have covered a lot of ground these past several weeks. And I hope over these past two and a half months, you have come to see why the church is bound up with the gospel. And this is actually leads you to see how much your Savior loves you and giving you the church. I know some of you have given up on it, at least being an authentic part of it. But who hands back a gift without first seriously taking a look at it? Do you see this gift as Christ sees it? A gift he has obtained, again, with the highest in the universe his own blood in great love friends Jesus not only saved you if you are a Christian he has made you a part of something bigger than yourself a place where the promises of God are made visible they're actually realized a body where you would work with God himself to build it up in love which means if you have frustrations with the church real baggage you're not alone but you have a privilege and responsibility now. You can't just remain from the outside taking shots. And there are plenty of Christians who are just doing that today. No, what is the privilege and responsibility of the Christian? Not to tear it down, but to build differently. To build a body that is active in doing the very things that God says we must do. Doing God's will in God's way. To actually building something better. A place where the gospel is actually made visible. Are you discontent with your church? Are you discontent with how churches are operating? Friend, what role will you take? Who is it that builds up the body? God does. Through you. I know, again, friends, that Maybe hard for us to believe that this is all possible. But it really doesn't come down to our capacities or how well we've performed in the past. Where is the hope for the church? It's as we keep central in our sights, point number one, Christ himself, who will never fail, who will never crack under the pressure, who is the only one who can take former enemies 
who, yes, will continue to offend one another and make them something of supernatural, profound impact. When I ask you, do you believe in the church? I'm asking you in a sense, do you believe in Christ? It is his bride. And in the final day, he will present it to himself, perfect and spotless. You really want to give your life to tearing it down. I don't know what you've experienced from churches or Christians. I'm not going to pretend there's not real fear and skepticism in this room, especially as we consider, as this body, we're considering a very disruptive move as a body. We're considering a church adoption. We're considering absorbing this body into another. Some of you have had a hard enough time learning to trust this one, and some of us never have. And some of us, just the thought of getting to know a whole new group of other body members, it just feels exhausting. But if the heart and head of this church really does remain the same, and it is not us, and if the mission of the church has never changed, and if Christ's promises remain true, then what role might God want you to play in the days ahead? In what way might you actually be essential, not just to building this body in love, but that one as well. If Christ is not our, mo our motive and assurance, I have to tell you, if it is only need that drives us into this decision or our comforts that unite us in evaluating it, we may as well just give it up. But if we insist together on making Jesus the point of this church and that one, measuring ourselves by the standard of his fullness, uniting around and maturing in his love, perhaps we might step forward as a body after all, and the gospel might become more visible than it ever has before. Lord, we've covered way too much ground this morning to hope to be able to live in step with all of these things, let alone even one of them. But we recognize that this, this body is your body. This church is your church. And it is a gift, a precious gift bound up with the gospel. Would we not reject it or tear it down? Would we define it according to your standards? And would we build it up together in love? Lord, that Christ might be made supreme. That this bride might be protected and made spotless. And we have the great assurances that you will accomplish this in the end. And for those who belong to this body, we praise your name and your wisdom for making us a part of it. And those who don't, would they finally draw near? Would they finally no longer reject the gift? Would they finally rest in the author and perfecter of their faith and come among those who are doing the same? And would watching the world gain nothing less than heaven on earth? all this for Jesus' sake.